0: So sometimes you get the privilege of listening to a sermon where the love and compassion of God is put on full display, where you can almost feel the warmth of God's comfort. Last Sunday, I have to say that Scott Stangley preached that sort of sermon. And and if you missed it, I would strongly encourage you to go back and give it a listen It was that powerful of a sermon, and I so appreciate you sharing those words with us last Sunday, Scott. Now, if you remember, Scott talked about watershed moments. I'm going to steal some of your work from last week. Those events or times in our lives where everything changes. And Jesus made mention of one of those events as he spoke with the Samaritan woman, the hour where worship would be completely transformed. The hour where dividing walls of hostility between the Jewish people and everybody else would be torn in two. And the promises of God would extend beyond the borders of Israel into the entire world. This morning, as we continue working our way through the narrative, we are going to see the first fruits of that extension unfold as the good news of the kingdom through an unlikely partnership between the Jewish Messiah and a Samaritan woman, pushes even deeper into Samaria, or as Scott shared last week to those dreaded residents of North Jersey. Um, His words, not mine. Just throwing you under the bus, Scott. Can't compliment you and not throw you under the bus at the same time. Um, So if you have your Bibles... Turn with me to John 4, and we'll be looking at verses 27 through 42. I bet a lot of you would consider me from North Jersey anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to say those things. Even though I, I would define it as Central Jersey, there's a lot of rules. We'll get there. We'll figure it out one day. Anyway, to situate ourselves, Jesus has just revealed himself to the Samaritan woman as the Messiah by identifying himself in the same way God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush. I, first, um, well, I'm, I am he who speaks to you, he says. And as Scott mentioned last Sunday, the first I am in a gospel filled with I am's is offered to this woman, a questionable Samaritan woman. And right at that moment, right at this mic-dropping declaration, the text says that his disciples came back. It says in verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? The text says that they marveled. We could even translate this as they were disturbed that, she, that he was talking with this woman. Either way, there was a feeling of shock that they were collectively experiencing. What I love is that although they were feeling all sorts of things, John is sure to tell us that no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? In other words, they all have opinions about what's going on, but they have zero courage to say anything. That's what we're seeing kind of unfold here. And what's being revealed about the disciples is both their racism and their sexism. And I don't say that to disparage the disciples, but more so to highlight the character of Christ and the sort of mission he's been sent on to accomplish which we'll get to in just a few minutes. Now, really quickly, as an aside, I actually love these moments, these moments that unfold in the Scripture, because these are the moments in the Gospels where we get to catch a glimpse of the disciples' brokenness as it stands side by side with the patience and grace of Jesus. Why do I love these moments? Because I believe these moments encourage us. I believe these moments give us hope because these people, these disciples, these, these few who were chosen by God to be his instruments, they're a work in progress. And the same can be said for every single one of us. We are on the way. None of us have arrived. Every single one of us, even if we've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, we all got stuff. And that's what I love about the way the Gospels portray the disciples. These are not heroes. These are not heroes. And and what this also does, it gives us confidence in the authority of the Scriptures because anyone writing their own story, they're not going to write all the bad stuff. They're not going to do that. But we see the brokenness. We see the bad stuff. We see their, their sinful nature just rising out of the text all the time. I mean all the time as you travel through these passages. So, so just as a point of encouragement, even the disciples had stuff to work on. And so we too are works in progress. Now the text shifts back to the woman. It says in verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, a couple things, right? The fact that she left her water jar, it just shows that she's excited. She's overwhelmed. Something incredible has just happened. In the words of Scott, a watershed moment has just unfolded before her eyes. Nothing would ever be the same. And where does she go? She goes away into the town and to the people. She goes back to her people to do what? To preach the gospel. Because something remarkable has just happened to her and she can't keep it to herself. She can't contain it. So she goes back even further into Samaria to tell other people about this good news, about this man who, could it be the Christ? Now, D.A. Carson makes an observation about what she says, and I have a slide for this. He says, now, relating the steps in her thinking to her people, she exhorts them, come see a man who told me everything I did which may be hyperbole, but quietly attests how central her messy and sinful personal life was to her thinking. In other words, this woman viewed herself through the lens of her brokenness. And here comes a man, if he is indeed the Christ, who can free her from those chains. She looks at her life and all she sees is her brokenness. And Jesus looks at her and says, there's more to your story than that. That might be some of your story here this morning. Some of you have walked through these doors week after week, carrying the burden of your sin, of your shame. And Jesus, the Christ, the Savior of the world, he is offering you living water. Not only to drink, but to cleanse yourself with that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, is that we don't have to carry that anymore. We don't have to walk through our lives through the muck and mire of our sin. He has freed us from that. We are forgiven. We have to believe that. We cannot continue to view our lives through our sinful past, through our even our sinful present, because God has lavished his grace upon us. He's lavished it. Has anyone ever lavished anything on you? Jesus lavishes his grace. He pours it out that it overflows. And you don't have to carry that burden, that sin, that shame anymore. It is nailed to the cross. We have to believe that Redeemer Fellowship. We have to believe that. And I don't think we are going to be able to move forward as followers of Jesus until we receive that truth wholeheartedly. We've got to hold on to that. We've got to receive the gospel that Jesus is preaching to us, that Jesus is, is, is lavishing upon us. That's just good news. That's just good news. Our sin and our shame has been covered by the grace of King Jesus. And we have been adopted into his family. We have been made alive, those of us who were dead, by his grace. Do you believe that? Let's keep going. Verses 31 through 33. Now, before we get into what's going on here, I think it's okay for us to to chuckle a little bit. Because it seems like whenever somebody has a conversation with Jesus, they're just lost. They have no idea what's going on. Check out what's going on here. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I'm reminded of my aunt every time I walk in her house. John, eat, eat. I'm "I'm good. I'm not hungry. I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? That's funny. In case you're not sure, that's funny. Because he is clearly speaking about something, and they're just completely missing the point. They're sitting there looking. It's like, hey, Matthew, did you bring him? John, did, who brought him food? I didn't bring him food. Did you bring? That's what we're looking at happening here. But check this out, right? This happens over and over again. To Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. How does Nicodemus respond? I can't climb back into my mother's womb. To the Samaritan woman, I have living water. She responds, the well is deep. You don't even have a bucket. What's wrong with you? And to his disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Did any of you bring him some food? See, but the comedy is actually driving home a point. Notice something else about these narratives that are actually strung together, literarily. I think that's the word. Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, and there is this theme of light and darkness, and this teacher of Israel, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. The Samaritan woman is approached by Jesus in the middle of the afternoon, while the sun is directly overhead, And their conversation is around thirst and living water, a conversation she responds to favorably, she actually starts to understand, and she responds by telling others. And then while his conversation with the disciples surround hunger and the food of Christ, which is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And so there is this this literary sort of sort of stream of events that happen: darkness, light, water, food. And they're all connected. And they're all about these interactions that Jesus has with people who don't understand. The teacher of Israel still doesn't get it. The Samaritan woman does. His disciples don't. Fascinating. What's going on here? Well, in verse 30, the text tells us that many Samaritans went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. John is trying to communicate something to us. He's trying to teach us something. He's kind of peering out from the narrative and saying, I need you to pay attention to this. This is key. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this is both royal and familial language that's being used here. This idea of giving the right. There's an authority attached to that. And and I I did a quick search on the word, and it shows up in all of these royal sort of scenarios in the Old Testament. And then this theme of children of God, this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. This goes back to the people of Israel who were the children of God. And then in John 3, a teacher of Israel, one of Jesus' own, right? he came to his own and they did not receive him, he doesn't get it. While the Samaritan woman, beyond the borders of Israel, she gets it. And not only does she get it, but as we'll see in just a few minutes, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of her words. Revival breaks out among the outsiders. You guys catching what's going on here? You see what Jesus is doing What's the point? Jesus is breaking down barriers. And he's drawing the nations to himself. The promise to Abraham is coming true right before our eyes. This plan for the fullness of time from Ephesians chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul talks about is unfolding. And Jesus is uniting all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that's the food he's talking about. That's the will of him who sent him. To bring all things together. To break down dividing walls of hostility. See, this is one of the central themes of the gospel. That Jesus entered into his creation He died upon a cross, and what ends up happening is that no longer is the family of God just just excluded to one group of people, but, but now it's starting to press outward. It's starting to expand to include every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it starts with these Samaritans. And then check out what he does next. Jesus begins talking about a harvest in verses 35 through 38. Check this out. He says, do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. He asks them to lift up their eyes. And then he says to see that the fields are white for harvest or ready for harvest. The text says that already or even now, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. In other words, this kingdom promise is up and running and they are right in the thick of it. They are right in the thick of it. And part of that kingdom promise is that th- that he is extending is that the grace of God the promise of God is extending beyond the borders of Israel and into the world. God is making his family bigger. Romans 4:13 says the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would inherit the world. And how does he do that? Through Jesus. Right? Just a few verses early, earlier we read the words for God so loved what? The world. When Jesus says to his disciples, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, where are they? You can answer. Where are they? They're in Samaria, thank you. They are in Samaria. What are they looking at? Anyone catch what they're looking at? What's coming toward them? They're in Samaria. And they're staring at a crowd of Samaritans coming their way. So not only is Jesus unfolding the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him, he's getting started. This is the best part. He's getting started with a group of people that his own disciples are severely prejudiced toward. If that's not discipleship, I don't know what is. I love what he's doing here. He's saying, guys, you, you got to look at what's going on here. Because I know what you're thinking. I know what you're, the questions you're asking in your heart. I, I know. You see what's going on here? You see how my kingdom is expanding? You see how the grace of God is, is bigger than maybe you ever even comprehended? You got to deal with your stuff because because my project's rolling on with or without you. You got to deal with your stuff. But see, this is what the gospel does, right? When it grabs hold of us, it unearths all our stuff. It brings us face to face with both the obvious sins and the stuff lurking beneath the surface. God's will. The work he sent Jesus to accomplish was the work of breaking down barriers. Barriers between the world and himself and barriers between his image bearers. That's why the greatest commandment calls us to love both God and neighbor. It's why we've adopted that as our mission to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor because that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of God. That's one of the central tenets of the good news of the kingdom is that barriers are torn to shreds and that not only do we have access to God, but now we also have access to one another. That reconciliation is taking place between individuals and between groups. That's what this is That's what this is about. That's what's unfolding here as we read through the texts of the New Testament, this particular text in John's Gospel, all of Paul's letters. That's what he's digging at. That's so important. And what I think we need to recognize, that if we have received the good news of the kingdom and have been adopted into the family of God, then we need to receive the family tree that goes with it. We need to receive the family tree that goes with it. Remember what the disciples were thinking when they saw Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. They wanted to ask her, what do you want? They wanted to ask Jesus, why are you talking with her? And so Jesus tells them to look up and with a short little parable, he answers their wicked hearts. She wants hope, just like you. And I'm talking with her because I'm bringing in another watershed moment where everything is about to change. And you know who I'm going to use to get this whole party started? The Samaritan woman who you all seem to have a problem with. That's good news. That's good news. You know why it's good news? Well, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is re-flipping the tables in the temple. Only these tables are set up in the hearts of his disciples, both those in his presence and maybe some of his disciples who are listening this morning. Maybe you have certain groups coming to mind as we work through this passage, or maybe you're trying to convince yourself that that you don't necessarily struggle with this sort of prejudice. Maybe you checked out when you heard me mention words like racism and sexism, but the truth is that God wants our hearts. That's the truth. God wants our hearts and he wants to rid us of all of that. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus is that it frees us from that sort of thinking and it creates something new where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female because we are all what? One in Christ. One in Christ. The devil divides but Jesus unifies And he unifies in himself those of us who have entrusted ourselves to King Jesus. We got brothers and sisters all over the world from every single background, every single ethnicity, every single socioeconomic position. That's the family of God. It's made up of a motley crew. It's wild, but it's good. It's so good. And that's why the greatest commandment is to love God and love neighbor. And that's why when, when, the, when, when, when that exchange happens and, and the question is asked, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus brings up these, the most unlikely of people to, to practice the most neighborly sort of way of living. A Samaritan is the good neighbor. Our neighbor is whomever we come in contact with. And we are called to love whomever we come in contact with. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what sin they might struggle with. It doesn't matter what they look like. Jesus is building something new. A kingdom comprised of all types of people. Our job is to be heralds of that kingdom. Our job is to be heralds of that kingdom in both word and deed. That's good news. We've been enlisted into something remarkable. Remarkable. Something that goes against every single bit about how the world functions. Division is how the world functions. It's one of Satan's best tools. And he uses it throughout the story of the Bible. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our discipleship course. How, how, this, how the serpent just kind of lurks and finds his way everywhere trying to divide families, trying to divide man from God, trying to divide husbands and wives, trying to divide parents from children. It's everywhere. And God's saying, nah, it's not how my kingdom works. It's not how my kingdom works. That's good news, Redeemer. The text keeps going. Verse 39 and following says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Check this out. The text says that many Samaritans believed. It then says that they believed because of the woman's testimony. Man, shocking stuff, right? It's not shocking to our ears. It's not. But to those in this circumstance, reading these texts when they first started rolling off the press, shocking. They believe because of who? Because of the Samaritan woman's testimony? Nah, that can't be. You're forgetting the teacher of Israel, Jesus. Remember him? He's the guy. She's like, nah. I got something different going on. I want to talk a little bit for a minute. Like I said, the text says that many believe because of her testimony. And there's something so helpful about this little statement. Because the story that God is writing in and through our lives, they have power. Sometimes we think that we bring nothing to the table. Maybe you don't know a lot about the Bible or theology. Maybe you feel you are not eloquent and you have a hard time articulating the gospel message. Maybe you feel like you don't have the right to share the gospel because of some shame or sin that that you're wrestling with or that you're unwilling to, to, to lay at the feet of Christ. But right here, in this passage, we see this woman and she simply shares what Jesus did in her life and many believed her own personal experience and story of salvation became a source of life for others. We all have that Redeemer Fellowship. We all have a story that God is writing in and through our lives, how he brought us to faith, what he saved us from. We might not know all the particular languages and all the Bible verses that go along with it, but we sure know what God has done for us. And this story encourages us to share it with others. But then check out what happens. Many more believe because of his word. And they told the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. The point is that Jesus has enlisted us to work alongside him, co-laboring with him to bring the good news of the kingdom to the world around us. And it so often starts by sharing our own story. And sharing our story, it means sharing our lives. That's hard. That's where it gets tough, right? And I'll be the first to admit, I'm lousy at this. Because I like my life in my house. I'm very comfortable there. I have all the things I need, and and, and I don't necessarily like those times where I'm I'm not working or not busy with something to be interrupted. But, But see, Jesus is calling us to allow ourselves to be interrupted, to allow our regularly scheduled programming to be interrupted. And are we willing, and I am preaching to myself, Are we willing to step into those circumstances by faith? Because what's happening is that Jesus is enlisting us to be his co-laborers. Oh, that's good news. And what a privilege. Sharing our own story and sharing our lives with those who might be seen as outsiders. So they might hear the good news of the kingdom. And the best He chooses the most unexpected to do his work. A Samaritan woman. He didn't pick the teacher of Israel. That would have been my obvious choice. I was never picked first in kickball. I just wasn't. And I wasn't even offended by it. I wasn't very good. I wasn't very good. They always picked my other two buddies who, who like, they would, they would run and they would, they would boot the ball, like, so far. And, and, and I was more of a bunter. You know, I was like a trick, trick player, right? <laughs> they picked the bunter. That's who Jesus picks. The foolish things of the world. The broken things of the world. The mess of the world. The outsiders of the world. That's the means by which he is communicating his good news to the world. Catching that? That's what's happening here in this narrative. That's what's unfolding right before our eyes. And that's the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And so your stories, they matter. And guess what? Some of you might be like, well, I don't have a story. I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. Guess what? That's your story. And man, I wish I had that story. That's not a story you should feel bad about having. That's a beautiful story. You probably were saved from a whole bunch of stuff because you've known Jesus from such an early age that you can't even remember when you didn't. And those of us who, who have a story you know, one of those exciting ones that we all like go and see, right? Like, oh, you gotta—you ever hear people like, oh, he's got a great testimony. Hey, guess what? We all have great testimonies because God made a dead sinner alive, right? That's so important. There's no such thing as a better testimony than that testimony. All of our testimonies are miraculous events that only God can accomplish. and All of us have one. Some of it may be how God has kept you, some of it may be how God has rescued from something horrific. But all of us have something, and all of us have something we can share. And then guess what? We, we bring them to a place where they hear the good news. It says many believed when they heard the words of Jesus now. Right? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And I'm not just necessarily talking about like Bible verse. I'm talking about the story of the gospel. It does need to be heard. But we, we, we know that story. Because if you're sitting here and you're a follower of Jesus, that story was told to you at some point in your life and you grabbed hold of it and you believed it. We all got the story. And we can't be ashamed to step out in faith. We can't be be concerned that that we might not be able to do it well. Share your life. Share your story. God's going to do work. He's going to do work. I'm not saying that that the first time you, you tell someone the gospel that they're gonna, that all of a sudden a whole town, town worth of people is going to come running. I'm not saying that. Maybe it will. But I am encouraging us to take those steps of faith and proclaim the good news of Jesus with both our lives and our words and the story that he's entrusted us with because we all have one. I'm going to be pushing a little bit more on evangelism because I do think that's something that our church we need to get better at we just do. We just do. We're, we're good at a lot of things. I think we're really good at loving each other. I think we're good at welcoming people into our community. We have to get better at pushing beyond these walls. We have to. We have to. But even in spite of that, God's still saving people. Like, like we're baptizing six people. That's amazing. Like, that represents people who have come, gone from death to life. That's like, that's the coolest thing. So God still works in spite of our neglect. But he also entrusts us with things. And so we're going to be talking about this more. I'm going to be challenging us more. I'm going to be challenging myself more because, because I do think that, that the patterns of me probably do filter down. And so I just got to get better at this. Like, I know that. And, I, and I, I covet your prayers in that. And I'll be praying for us as a church. In fact, that's one of the things we pray for on Tuesday mornings. And again, this is not to guilt anyone because I understand Tuesday morning is Tuesday afternoon in the middle of the day and people are working. But if you are available, come. Be a part of that time where we just pray. We pray for the lost. We pray for one another. Beautiful things have happened already. It's a, it's a really sweet time, and I would just encourage you, if you're around, come, pray, 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock. It's an hour, and sometimes an hour of praying can be tiring, but it's well worth it, and so I would encourage you to do it. And, and, and my prayer... We're off topic now. It's okay. My prayer is that we would be so, so we would desire that so much that that if there's people who want that space to pray, but can't do it on a Tuesday afternoon, like come talk to us. I'm sure we can figure out another time during the week where someone can open up this building. It might not be me. It's okay if I'm not at an event. I wasn't at the event yesterday and I heard it was phenomenal. I heard there was like over 30 people here and I heard it was a wonderful thing. In fact, it's so cool for pastors when they see their church doing their thing and they're not necessarily at the event or doing the thing. And so if you want to pray, if you're looking for a space for that to happen and you're the only time you can pull it off is at night, we can figure it out. Come talk to us. We'll make it work. For some reason, God has been impressing that on my heart and on my mind, this idea that we need to be a church that prays. We've got to pray we got to pray. And that's hard. We are way off track, but that's okay. The passage concludes with the words of the Samaritans. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here's one of those John double meanings. These Samaritans, they see something in Jesus. Something that speaks to their story beyond the borders of Israel. They were were outcasts. And they're thrilled by it. They're thrilled by it. And they're coming to him, and they are believing in him. But John is also speaking directly to us. Those of us who Jesus prays for in John 17, those who will believe in him. Coolest part of John is that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us in John 17. You got to read it. I would encourage you. Go back while you have some time this week. Just read through the high priestly prayer in John 17, and you'll see that he prays for you. And, and so that means that this, this, this book, the Gospel of John, is also speaking to us. And he's telling us, this Samaritan is saying, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And his salvation, it breaks through into some of the most unexpected and darkest of places the sins we have committed, the shame we carry, the struggles and temptation that wreak havoc on our minds. Jesus offers living water. Jesus offers freedom. Jesus offers salvation. For those of us who believe and entrust ourselves to the good news. I'm reminded of the words of Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And the next verse of the hymn starts with, No condemnation now I dread. This is the truth of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom. There is nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Come to Jesus. Receive his grace. Drink the living waters and allow yourselves to be cleansed. He is the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. This family is made up of all types of people. Our brothers and sisters Are scattered around the entire cosmos. That's good news. It's good news. That's my hope for us. That's my hope for us who are carrying burdens that we would lay them down. You don't have to carry that anymore. You don't have to carry that anymore. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, We love you with all of our hearts and we thank you for the amazing grace of your good news, what your son Jesus accomplished on that cross. Not only did it save us from our sins, but it broke down every single barrier, Lord God. Thank you. Thank you for that, Lord God. Thank you that in him we have life, that in him we are adopted into a new family, Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray that your spirit would breathe life into us and that we would walk in the freedom that you have lavished upon us by your grace, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.